Welcome to Ecclesia Love, spiritual encouragement through sharing our neighbors' faith experiences. We honor different perspectives and reverence for the topics we share. Through Ecclesia Love, we listen to understand and develop our own point of view. In this partnership with the divine and with one another, we are community alive and vital in the world. You're listening to a previously recorded Ecclesia Circle conversation. To hear more group conversations, visit our YouTube channel, Ecclesia Love for All. All right, well, uh, welcome to another episode of Stranger in the Homeland. Um, And uh, I'm really excited about tonight because last week was so interesting and um, really telling. You know, I, I find myself uh, becoming more um, more aware uh, in terms of people's journeys, particularly through um, a very inexperienced America. And um, there was someone that I met recently, I'm trying to think where I was, but I came across this, uh, oh, it was the Juneteenth celebration that Tracy uh, and Jim invited a bunch of us in the upstate to go to. And they broke us out into small groups to have um, tough conversations about uh, race and um, equity. And a man in my small group uh, pointed out just how, I don't, what was the word? Rick, you were in the group. Remember the, the word, what I'm thinking of? Isolated. Isolated, yes. Uh, about America? Yeah, I think isolated was his word. Uh, well, the word he used to describe America was arrogant. Well, there was, it wasn't that part of it. It was, okay. it was that, that we're isolated. We don't, we don't travel. We don't get out and experience other cultures. Um, we certainly, you know, for the most part, most people don't travel abroad, and we feel that our our experience going from the East Coast to the West Coast is a big one. <laughs> in terms of culture and race relations and all of that, it really isn't. And um, this gentleman was from Ghana, and um, so he also had a... a a, a homeland experience and then coming to the United States in his adulthood and uh, but it, it I'm, I feel like ever more getting people in my path that are reminding me of just how um, naive that I am in some ways too and so this has just been a really enlightening and um, educational journey to be on um, just the whole time that Sunil and Anantha have been involved in Ecclesia. So anyway, I'm, I'm excited for tonight. We moved from India, I understand, into the United States and their experience here. And so uh, I will open us with a word of prayer and then um, turn it over to those gentlemen. God of the ages, the sages, all space. We just thank you for opportunities 
to recognize you in all of your creation, in all of your people, and especially getting to know our neighbors, their diversity of thought, as well as the diversity we can see. Lord, I just pray that tonight open our minds and our hearts to receive inspiration and encouragement through Anatha and Sunil's faith journeys and pray that the telling and sharing of their experiences and the support that they receive be a blessing to them as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Anatha to Neil, the floor is yours. Samil, take over. Start over, Sunil, you're muted. All right. I feel a bit like John the Baptist. Uh, do you know what is common between John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh? They, no. they, both, shared, they both shared the same middle name. <laughs> Anyhow, I, I feel a bit like John the Baptist because uh, it's as if I'm paving the way and uh, he who comes after me is much greater than I am and I'm unworthy to be called his you know, disciple and all that, right? So I, it's, it's an honor because uh, like uh, when I joined Ecclesia one and a half year ago, I even shared it's just to be on the same call with him it is, is an honor of, of the stage area as in our journalism circle. So to, to partner with him and do this is, is, such, is, is a privilege I, I do not take lightly. So there are three things I wanted to share uh, briefly and set it up for him to sort of um, uh, pick it up from there and we could answer a few questions there from there on. So in this part today, I wanted to talk specifically about how I personally discovered Christ and my faith journey began. The town, even where Prafula went to visit my in-laws, and I was born, the little town is called Ramnagar. Ram, as you know, is a name of a Hindu god uh, who's on about whom the whole story of Ramayana is written. It's it's a complete. It, Ram is is by far the most well-known, very very popular uh, type of a character in Hindu mythology. And this, this ghetto that we lived in, this very, very economically impoverished area we lived in, was called Ram Nagar, and which means a, a town where Ram, uh, named after Ram. And the reason that ghetto was named Ram Nagar was because there was a huge temple which had the name Ram as well. It's called Ramalayam, which is a temple belonging to, named after Ramalayam. Why is it interesting to the story? Not only was I living in a town called Ram, but my house was like spitting distance, literally, like a wall away from that temple. And the temple's uh, priest and his kids were kids I played with when we were growing, going to school and coming back. I ran inside the temple many a times and we pray, played along with his children inside the temple. <clears throat> 
every morning at 5 a.m. when they put on the blaring loud music of, of their religious songs and bhajans and what, all that, it would just wake us up. We didn't need, you know, uh, alarms on our phone to wake us up. We, we had these religious songs blaring, waking up the whole neighborhood. And interestingly, the lady, the priest's wife, her name is Mrs. Saroja, was a very good friend of my mother. And so anytime there was a big religious festival and, and their family got a ton of uh, tasty food from all over the ghetto, all over the town, we would have, have to share with them because obviously one family couldn't eat all the good food that they would have got. So she would generously share it with our family and many other families. And that interfaith bond was something that only we were privileged. 20, 30 years later, the country went into a completely different path and uh, possibly uh, um, uh, uh, Ananta will pick up on that as well. But basically, I lived in an almost idyllic, very beautiful time of interfaith bonding and unity. The second thing that I also wanted to share was Muslims or people who practiced Islam faith were also an integral part of our community. No matter where, which part of the city you went, you couldn't run very far from bumping into a friend from a Muslim faith. We were very into the city of Hyderabad is a, a predominantly city led by Islamic influence, Muslim kings and Mughals. And, and then we were we were talking about Taj Mahal a few minutes earlier on. One of the biggest monuments in India is in, in the city of Hyderabad, which is called four minars, four minarets, like four towers that, that make a beautiful monument. In this milieu of being strongly around Hindus and also very, very influenced by Muslims, Christian faith was a minority faith like I alluded to last week. The only thing that was proud worthy of our faith was the Roman Catholic schools and the English medium schools and the missionaries that started English medium schools in the city that dotted the cityscape. So if you were rich, if you were wealthy, hmm. and if you were well-to-do, you would send your children to these good schools that these Christians had started. Christians had also influenced the medical field, but I'll not go there because I'll stay with the education field because that's where I got my education. And if you were a villager or a person from the village who came into the big city to make a living, there are two things that, that mark your arrival as an immigrant. A, you, you would have a home of your own. B, you would send your kids to good English medium schools. Why? Because that path allowed you to get into jobs, government jobs or private jobs or get into business or whatever. But in India, you had to be schooled or educated to get to any degree of success. Otherwise, you'll be consigned to physical labor jobs, which wouldn't pay much, by the way. So in this, just like we talked about the community hierarchy of, of the, the warriors and, and, and so on, and at the bottom and away from that body where the Dalits or people from low caste families, education also was like a hierarchy. If you went to the best schools, you had guaranteed access to good jobs and you had some survival possibilities. So in that view, 
I grew up and I, many of you know my story. My faith is very closely linked to the adversity that I faced. That's the second part I want to talk to you about. If I did not face adversity, I'm, I'm not sure I would have allowed my faith to become as vibrant or uh, as real as it became to me. What do I mean by that? At the age of 12, I my dad lost his reasonably well-paying job. He was an automobile technician and he was working for an international firm, which paid him reasonably good money. In fact, he was outpaid or he paid, he, did, he got more than what he would have got if he had worked in an Indian firm. And so we, ha we had some degree of access to international cars because that was his job. He was taking care of cars that were imported from Japan and um, Germany. And, and, he, and I was like a rock star when I went to uh, school in a Nissan or something because everybody in the ghetto, they barely would come to the school in, in their dad's, on their dad's bicycle or something. So from some degree of perceived luxury, I came down to almost like a, a, a complete pauper because even good clothes were hard to come by. So we would wear hand-me-downs and my mom would somehow put patches on trousers or alter um, clothes that were handed down to us, which couldn't fit, ill-fitting clothes. In fact, one of the names that I got bullied with or bullied by, by, by name calling was a name called Alter. Because every time I would wear altered clothes, my friends discovered that these clothes were not mine, but they were altered. And they used to just call me Alter, Alter. That name stuck. And even today, when in the WhatsApp group that we all are part of, they even remember that. So that's how deep was that name calling and bullying that went. So around that time, four children, two people in the big city, no income, no home of their own. We were evicted from home to home, not able to eat food for days at a time sometimes till someone from church or someone from in the community would just send us some uh, food, leftover food. That was how bad it had become. Um, there were two times in my life th that I was this close to committing suicide. And uh, around that time, a friend of mine took me to a youth meeting where the story of Daniel was being shared. And through the story of Daniel in chapter 11, verse 32, where the verse says, those who know their God shall be strong and do great things. That verse jumped up at me and said, those who know their God shall be strong and do great things. And it, it was that transforming verse that, that impacted me. And I prayed that day and I said, God, if you can get us out of this, this deep spiral of poverty, I will always be dedicated to you. I will serve you. I will love you. I will make my life modeled on, on your word. That started the journey as, as a teenager. I was uh, 17 going into 18, the year that I came to faith. And it was that turning point conversation that allowed me to just mend my ways, straighten my paths in college, the hooliganism I was involved in, the, the, the violent ways of, uh, of uh, the, the student politics that I was associated I just quit all that and try to get on the narrow path. That's, that's the second part I wanted to talk to you about. My faith came through because of the adversity that, that we, our family got hit with. And because of that journey and because of my faith, 
I started taking on almost impossible things un, 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 unheard of uh, in our circles. At the age of 18, I started working, selling um, water purifiers and vacuum cleaners door to door so that the rest of my siblings and my parents had some something to live by. I supported my family. My So over the next few years, I really helped my family come out of the spiral of poverty. We started having food back on the table. We started living in a rented home with some degree of dignity without being constantly evicted. My sisters stayed through college and high school without dropping out. So some fight back and come back happened because of the faith that that powered my, my journey. My adversity, the success over the adversity reinforced my faith and my faith drove our way up. So in, you know, it was a wonderful cycle of growing through that faith. I, at, some, at some point of time, I always wanted to become a pastor or an evangelist. But it, for some reason, God did not open that door. Uh, I'll, I'll explain more in the Q&A, but that would have been my number one profession. But the number two profession which I chose was communication. And um, God really allowed me to just excel year after year. And finally, uh, the company that I was working for opened an immigrant path to me. I went to UK for a couple of years. And then finally, I came to the United States. Interestingly, after I came to the United States, my... I was thinking, come on, at least here in the, in the, in the presence of what is a predominantly Judeo-Christian country, my faith would be a little, um, a little more celebrated here. But I, I discovered, much to my surprise, or possibly the wrong state I chose, I came to New Jersey and New York area, which is a true blue, hardcore, um, uh, liberal sort of a state. And barring the churches and the circles we were in, everywhere we, we met, my faith was almost seen with as much contempt as, as it was in India. That was a bit of a disappointment. I, I thought to myself, come on, I, I should not be apologetic about my faith in this country. But I, here I go. Uh, every place, whether it was at my work or whether in my community, it was almost like there is some degree of anathema, some degree of untouchability if you are a Christian. Oh, if you are a Christian, then you must be so outdated believing in all this stuff. Or if you are a Christian, uh, you must be a dogmatic person. You, so there are all these connotations associated with these Bible-thumping type of Christians, and the stereotypes had, had started to really start shaking me up. It is here that, again, my Indian faith literally helped me by planting ourselves in a bicultural church where we were attending an Indian church too, we were able to insulate ourselves and hold on to what we believe is, is our faith without letting us affect us fundamentally as well. So I got very active in the Indian church and that stranger in a homeland feeling continued even, even after I came here. And so as I started exploring last week and this week, the question is, will we ever be at home on earth? And, and my mind went back to John chapter 17, where he talks about how we will always be strangers and aliens in this world. Even if you attend the largest church in the world, any, any city, you go to Texas or you go to any place which is in the Bible belt, or there will never be a time where 
you are seen as, hey, you're welcome here, your faith is welcome here. We will always be seen as those people, those, you know, um, the, the, the outliers or the sore thumbs, if I were to say so. So the title that we chose, um, Strangers in, 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 in the Homeland, that phenomena is not just a metaphor for my faith in India or my faith in New Jersey or any other place. I think as long as we try to be in this faith journey and we call ourselves people of faith, I think we'll always be strangers. So those three elements were what I wanted to share. I'll pause here, hand it to Dr. Ananta, and then we'll engage in some Q&A. Should, should we go back to you, Michelle? Thanks, Sunil. I think you resonate. Uh, you know, my experiences also resonate with, with the journey uh, you're going through. Um, except right, right, right off the bat, I wish uh, I wish I had more uh, anchoring uh, in the faith uh, aspect, uh, like you are anchored in. I that's kind of a, a, um, I envy you of on that, you know. Um, um, because my my faith journey, um, I I still keep questioning, and um, at times I think uh, I uh, I look at religion as uh, a ritual um, rather than a matter of faith, you know, um, and I I think that's sort of uh, shaped by my uh, my my childhood and my upbringing in uh, um, in a priest family uh, in a church uh, workers family um, and uh, so going back to uh, you know I precede you uh, by you know <clears throat> at least two three decades so uh, my my journey um, starts earlier uh, than yours and um, Hyderabad is in our DNA. I mean, that's, that's the city uh, I grew up in was secular um, with occasional um, uh, friction between Hindus and Muslims. But most of the time, I mean, Christians were kind of uh, sheltered or um, uh, protected in their neutrality and in their ability to um, educate Hindus and Muslims in Christian schools and Christian hospitals catered to their health uh, matters. So we, we kind of grew up uh, in that milieu of um, kind of the ability to cross over uh, into different religions, glide through different rituals, um, and kind of become very close observers of how other religious uh, uh, influences affect all Indians, particularly me, growing up in Hyderabad in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and, and beyond. So, um, as most of you know, um, you know, my father was, uh, you know, kind of handpicked from a village uh, to uh, go all the way to uh, England to get his uh, divinity um, education. Uh, um, and um, 
you know, prominently shaped by theologians who uh, who actually had a great presence in the uh, British Commonwealth countries. Um, so Britain was an empire, you know, that ruled most of Asia and Africa at one time. And um, so if you converted to Christianity, then you grew up in a lot of Western traditions of uh, scholarship, education, authors, literature. Um, uh, so we, we were probably the best positioned Indians uh, to succeed in the West because of that background, the intellectual grounding we had um, in uh, exposure to Christianity. And, um, you know, every Sunday we would have an order of worship um, and uh, uh, English hymnals um, and hearing sermons in English in the evening um, and our native uh, Telugu worship in the morning. So uh, English literally came as not a second language, but as a primary language too. I mean, we, uh, we, we were very comfortable in the language of English. And uh, I think that impacted on how, um, how we even thought about religion and faith. Um, I think the language has a lot to do with how you think, right? And, um, and I think we were growing up as Indians uh, in all the rituals in, all, in, the, in, this, in the society. But we were also, uh, because we were educated in English uh, as children, um, and that was my favorite subject, and um, I, I was loved by all my English teachers. I mean, they just, you know, um, um, appreciated how I grew up in that language, so to speak, uh, to an extent where I was a valedictorian of, of my high school. Um, I suspect because I was really good in English, uh, not that I was the smartest guy in, in the school. Um, but, you know, growing up in the shadow of uh, an Anglican bishop, um, uh, it had a, a big impact on how uh, my faith uh, was being crystallized. Uh, and in the form formative uh, years of my life. And um, uh, I loved, I don't know, I probably shared this with you uh, before, but by the time I finished my high school, I had read from um, Genesis to Revelation, every page in the Bible, four times. I finished the Bible four times and uh, my secret was I would go into the chapel service at 6, 6.15 in the morning in my boarding school. And uh, they would have the worship. I mean, they would have the, the service. And I would read the Bible. I wouldn't pay attention to anything going on in, in the service. I would just concentrate on the Bible. And I relished that experience because I was looking at Bible as a, a literary document which had many stories and, and many pieces of advice coming at me every day, every page, every chapter I read. And um, 
kind of got deeply ingrained in my psyche as such. And um, uh, so that probably started my um, sort of a active thinking about Christianity first. I mean, it's like, so, you know, what what was that uh, storytelling? What kind of narrative power that particular book had on me as such? Uh, but it was not until um, I uh, became uh, an active member of the Episcopal Church in the U.S. and uh, uh, and I wondered why was I staying with the Episcopal Church. Well, you know, partly because loyalty to my dad as an Anglican bishop. You know, I couldn't get away from it. And two, I was looking at more or less the ritualistic aspect of the Anglican worship. Um, we would get drawn into it. There's a participatory aspect and there was a um, critical thinking aspect. <clears throat> and when um, and when I embarked on um, a four-year um, uh, program in, uh, in the School of Theology um, at the University of the South, which is the Anglican um, Episcopal uh, University uh, in Tennessee, um, I began to read uh, about Christianity more deep, I think, in a deeper way. Um, and I think Tom experienced this when we were fellow students in, in that, uh, we call it EFM program, Education for Ministry, EFM. And, um, and that was a very rich source of my knowledge of uh, of Christianity began to solidify uh, in that as such. So, but growing up with Hindu friends like, like Sunil did, growing up with Muslim friends, and we all walking to school together, coming back from school together and playing cricket in the evening. And um, on Saturdays uh, afternoon, you know, um, if my Best friend invited me to, hey, I'm going to the temple. Uh, you want to join? You want to come on up? I would trade along with them. You know, we would go and I would sit um, inside, uh, you know, uh, the, in the compound of, of the uh, temple, watch them. And, uh, and I would observe that, like, fascinating. Uh, they go around in circles uh, by the temple, ringing the bells. Um, and they would go to the priest and priest would give something and they would eat. And I'm saying, huh, that is so similar to the Holy Communion I do uh, in, in the church. Uh, it's very interesting how these rituals begin and began and thousands of years earlier in Hinduism. And um, we have that sharing of body of Christ and, and the blood of Christ. And um, so I would observe that. And then I go to the mosque with my Muslim friends, and they would be going around the mosque uh, in a ritualistic way. And then they would go in and they would literally kneel down and literally fall down. Uh, and I'm going, well, the kneeling down, that is, that's, that's what we do in the church. And this was like uh, amazing similarities I was, I was gathering. I was not looking for dissimilarities. I wasn't looking for contradictions. I was looking for uh, 
things which were common between these three major religions that I was exposed to. And uh, so in a way, it became a very uh, interfaith journey for me. Uh, intellectually, I was getting rooted in Christianity, but in a ritualistic way, I was fascinated by how other religions are practicing their faith. And uh, then, uh, uh, but through college, I dropped the ball on complete church-going habit, or, or you know, I got away from religion. I just concentrated on my studies through masters and PhD, and uh, then I end up at TCU. And uh, so I walked in thinking, okay, Texas Christian University. I said, oh my God, I got double whammy here, Texas and Christianity. I said. Holy Jesus, how do I, how am I going to survive on this? But TCU turned out to be a quite a liberal and accepting university. And uh, I would notice some Hindu students arriving from India to go to a private college like TCU. They must be very rich back home. Um, so then I started observing uh, names like uh, students coming in from India called Pankaj Birla. And I said, this is a Birla kid. I mean, you know, so he was the grandson of one of the richest families in India, the Birla family. And, um, you know, then I said, wow, this is amazing how these kids end up here, you know. And they would arrive first day, they would buy a BMW brand new. And I'm going, dude, I've been teaching here for 10 years. I, you know, I'm driving a clinkety clank Chevrolet. And this guy parks his BMW next to me and gets out and says, hello, Dr. Babley. And I said, I'm going to slap your face, dude, you know. Uh, but, but in the sense that, and they would ask me questions about where do we go for temple? Where do we go? Uh, where do you know any, you know, place where we go Hindus worship? And, and you know, so I became a guide to their Hindu rituals and Muslim rituals as such. But backtrack go back you know going back and uh, uh, so I became literally a very liberal very open-minded person and uh, uh, I never ever heard of the word abortion in India okay for example so I come to the United States and suddenly abortion became such a uh, uh, factor in people's lives in this country. And I said, what has happened? How, how could this, why is this such a big, why? I mean, it was, I was just wondering about what makes a culture um, hang on to certain causes or certain things that shape their civilization and why India never had a controversy uh, regarding abortion or ownership of guns, uh, because everything was permitted and everything for, was you know, uh, going on. And in India, we call ganja uh, marwana, and that wasn't a big factor in India. I mean, uh, you know, people just consume it or uh, kids uh, experiment with that, with, you know, and I come here and I said, oh, marwana, guns, and abortion. These three things were, incredibly um, uh, kind of political events. But back home in my religious and faith journey, they never entered my life. 
you know um so i just wondered why certain cultures allow and and kind of be permissive in certain areas while you come to another culture and you see you know roe versus wade last day yesterday or day before yesterday i mean these were like amazingly explosive issues and they were dividing people and making it so emotional i'm going you know this just doesn't make sense to me even now in the terms of going through my faith journey of self-discovery uh i still face those issues on a day-to-day basis so i guess it has something to do with me growing up as an indian and growing up as a christian in india and uh uh, because sermons which my father gave every Sunday never ever alluded to these issues uh, that in this country uh, become so big and the Episcopal Church deliberately avoids even the mention of any social conflict uh, in, in their in their uh, Sunday services. It just amazes me how we don't even pray for victims of violence in in um, uh, in the Episcopal Church, because that brings up the specter of gun violence, and they'll have a passing reference to, oh, the tragedy that has happened in Uvalde. Let's pray for you know uh, the families, and but it's a very vague, vague reference, and it doesn't have any uh, symbolic or or substantial meaning to children. Uh, in in the church, attending the service, or adults. Uh, so everybody wants to avoid mentioning anything that that kind of uh, has a uh, it doesn't re- resonate with with the, with the faith journey that they are in. And uh, so that I be, that became uh, that made me actually a, a questioning Christian rather than accepting Christian. Uh, I um, I still today question um, how Christianity was formed um, and how uh, Bible is uh, the central anchoring book and how we follow uh, a book uh, that also has some um, uh, imperfections in, of humanity uh, all through sprinkled in that book and how even the most uh, holiest of our prophets, of our um, uh, role models in that uh, had deep flaws um, and uh, how that is sort of embodying uh, the modern uh, Christian faith in different levels as such. So my, um, uh, well, well, uh, the quest to understand my own, my own self, my own journey, it led me to the readings of uh, uh, Bhagavad Gita and Ramayana. Uh, I, I studied uh, uh, both the books and I studied the English translation of Quran. Um, and they take prominent place in my office, by the way. All these volumes are there. Um, and and uh, it, it's so interesting that reading of uh, uh, Gita, for example, Bhagavad Gita, um, the central characters of Lord Krishna and the Pandavas who are five brothers um, and all marrying the same lady, same time, okay? Uh, five brothers having one wife. Um, 
and uh, how each five brothers embody different human uh, uh, personality or characteristic, uh, both with beautiful, adorable traits and yet have are flawed human beings. Um, and Lord Krishna uh, being the Lord of, of in, in one of the Lords and gods in Hinduism uh, was also a very flawed and very conniving, very tricky God. Um, and um, and how, how we see uh, gods in Hinduism as male figures, as female figures, and as androgynous figures. They're, uh, all these gods have these personalities of the, of the transcending sexuality. And uh, so that kind of gave me a latitude uh, to understand the psychology of how uh, we, uh, how me, how myself, uh, I've been interpreting my faith and my journey through this as such. Um, so, for example, the Hindu texts, I mean, these, these are, you know, uh, I began to see how I sometimes uh, admired and had fascination for the villains in, in uh, Mahabharata. You know, the, the Pandavas have this eternal, incredible battle uh, against uh, the Kauravas, who were 100 people and led by a very noble figure named Karna. And Karna was the kind of depicted as a traditional villain in, in uh, understanding of Mahabharata. But I loved the guy, the characteristics that he embodied and the loyalty and um, you know the strength that he represented. So I'm going, okay, so what's my journey? How is it being shaped? All these figures have impact on how I looked at my faith and how I looked at my understanding of religion and how I looked for commonalities between the Gita and the Ramayana central figures, which Sunil was mentioning, Ram, you know, and his brother, uh, Lakshman, um, again, fighting a bad villain uh, who was from Sri Lanka, by the way, you know, and I'm going, dang, you know, you're blame Sri Lanka for everything, you know. Uh, but in a way, all those uh, metaphorical imagination that, that I possess today are very much inter interfaith, interreligious, interspiritual uh, journeys that, uh, that I've, I was embodying. And, I'm, and I was confused uh, for a period of time being a dad's son uh, who no less a bishop in the Anglican Church? How could I betray my dad? How could I betray my dad's faith? And how 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 am I being raised? You know what's going on with me? I had very some deep conflicts in me. I mean, I would spend sleepless nights wondering what's going on with me as a human being. You know, um, so having achieved intellectually and professionally. Uh, what I was doing, I was struggling and having a, literally I was wrestling with, with gods or with God. Um, and uh, with a deep appreciation of Jesus and what the Bible stood for, I mean, that I reached that stage eventually, I mean, gradually, but it took a lot of conflict uh, and, and understanding of this because there's a deep, sense of, uh, how shall I say, 
goodness in the Bible that that I uh, believe in, and uh, and that did a lot of good to societies in India, like America, Asia, and, and Europe. Um, but it also created great deep conflict in in a multi-religious context of India itself. So. Um, how shall I say? Today, my faith journey uh, is becoming solid, becoming a more um, uh, stable. Uh, yet, I still retain the capacity to be very um, critically uh, inclined towards religions uh, and take things that reinforce my faith uh, rather than questioning them all the time. So. In a way, that's the stage that I have uh, uh, reached as such. So I shall uh, stop there and uh, we can have a conversation on that. And uh, Ranu may, may want to chime in on what uh, she uh, thinks about fellow Indians going through a different faith journey uh, than, than, than she, for example or anybody else? You know, um, I've got a dozen questions, but the, <clears throat> the first one, Doctor, is when you were growing up and growing up in a uh, multilingual country, what language did you think in? You know, I... I, um, I can... I... I, I Telugu is my language, okay? Yeah. Uh, and Telugu is one of the four primary South Indian languages, um, but there are multitudes of languages uh, even in South India. Um, but growing up in a uh, Telugu household, um, I thought of, I th in my, my thinking was in my native language, okay. my, my mother tongue. And, um, I guess now I'm kind of bilingual in my thought process. Mm -hmm. you know, I still think about in Telugu, but I also think about, I think in, uh, uh, in English. But if you ask me what, what language do I dream in? Yes. That's a deeper question because um, it's, I'm thinking I, I dream in Telugu. Um, most of the time uh, in my dreams, um, unless I'm talking to a white guy or, yeah. or, or to nice. a, an English, a native English speaking person. Um, but, uh, I think otherwise, I think I, I still dream in my language. Okay. I don't know about Sunil though. Okay, that might be ditto, ditto. I, I actually, I. I love the Telugu language. Back in the day, I used to write a little poetry and uh, wow. just to, I, I love the language. If I were to become a, an evangelist and go and preach, my first priority of preaching would be in Telugu language. I love the language. It's interesting. It's very cool. So, Rano, uh, Rano, by the way, just uh, messaged saying, sorry, I must leave in a few minutes. We'll catch up with the group uh, soon. 
um, next time. I think she, she, she's on. Oh, I'm, I'm still here. I just, oh, oh, okay. okay. I'm listening. I'm listening to everything that's being said. Thank you. Tracy, you had a. Well, I just wondered. I know you mentioned that there are a lot of other languages in the south of India. Do you understand some of those? Well, even um, though you may not um, speak them? People often ask me that, and Sunil probably has a different answer, maybe same, but uh, I can identify with at least seven languages, um, which will definitely you know, include my Telugu as my first language, English, uh, Hindi, which we uh, speak in, in uh, India, most of, most, I mean, at least four or five major states speak Hindi. Um, then we also have Urdu, which is, a kind of an offshoot of Arabic uh, practiced by, I mean, spoken by Muslims uh, a lot of times. So, and the neighboring languages like Tamil, Malayalam, you know, we, we kind of at least have a conversing or understanding of, of those uh, uh, languages as such. So every Indian, I would say, will probably, you know, won't be too surprised if they know four languages. Um, and, uh, uh, and that sort of helps, at least help me in, in nurturing uh, relationships with uh, fellow Indians and understanding where they're coming from. So maybe, maybe you know. Ditto, ditto, same thing. Yeah. Great, you all speak four languages, we can barely master one. So there is a, a linguist, uh, linguistic a professor uh, in University of North Texas, and she's from Kashmir, India, and uh, she has been recording um, uh, Indian languages that may go extinct, um, and um, uh, because they're no longer being uh, spoken, um, and some some major languages actually Konkani and things like that didn't have a script until 20 years ago, but spoken by several million people. Um, and so they depend on other uh, scripts from other languages uh, to, uh, to continue, but spoken language would be unwritten. Um, uh, and, um, and she was telling me that the linguistic professor that every year uh, uh, they discover uh, a handful of languages in India, which have not been counted uh, in the UNESCO um, uh, um, languages of the world. Uh, so she said that there are about, uh, uh, currently about 9,800 uh, uh, developed languages in India alone. Yeah. I've kind of heard that um, before somewhere. I, I was curious, do you know of this language that you're speaking of that mm -hmm. only had script recently? How did they carry their history and their beliefs? And, you know, because we talk about, yeah. well, there's a lot of uh, commentary about scripture, biblical scripture being carried verbally for years and years before it was written down. 
So that is a fascinating um, question because uh, Michelle, the Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth um, uh, has um, many languages of India being taught in the seminary um, to train uh, missionaries to go to India and uh, not just do dominant languages of India, but rural um, languages which not many people know about if they are being taught at the seminary in Fort Worth. And uh, I know of several uh, students uh, who are actually even writing the script of a language they learned in, in Polynesia or, or uh, you know, far east in the Pacific Islands, uh, coming back to uh, the seminary in Fort Worth to actually develop a script uh, and then take it back uh, to give them a script for their language. Wow. Uh, and that brings out um, a whole lot of post-colonial um, uh, critique of how the West uh, tries to help um, <laughs> tribals and other populations develop that, but they also have an intent that Bible can be translated so that Christianity can be uh, brought to those cultures. So uh, that's a contradiction. You know, you're developing a language uh, just to spread Christianity, or but they take it literally that until everyone on this planet knows about Christ, there won't be a second coming of Christ. Uh, and that's the kind of a biblical um, uh, mandate that they take to uh, far uh, places. Um, uh, and in India, I know this for sure that there is uh, there are a collection of several villages in Maharashtra, a state where uh, a statue of a white missionary is in the middle of the village square that itself has become a Hindu uh, and Christian deity. I mean, people actually worship that statue. Oh. You know, they garland it uh, in the mornings, they, they bring uh, offerings, and here's a white man, um, and they're worshiping because he brought something to that uh, uh, culture which nobody else did. And do they look at that as um, a representative of, of uh, yeah. God, Christ? Uh, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. So um, I guess going back to the, I guess my question was did they not have a problem carrying their history all these centuries and generations without it being written down? Did any no, the, 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 they believe the, uh, that anything has gotten lost? The ability to yes. keep the language alive um, takes place through oral history uh, and transferring down to generation to generation and through theater, through drama, through uh, singing uh, ancient uh, hymns and rituals that they have composed. So that keeps the language alive. Um, Maybe not necessarily. Rana just weighed in that it is getting lost or confused. I no, I was. Oh, let me turn on my video. Sorry about that, guys. Yeah. Seeing a blank screen. Hello. <laughs> 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 um, no, I'm. I don't. I'm no scholar on this, but 
all that I know is that what I've understood, as with many, many ancient traditions, even our indigenous traditions here, oral history was the way to transfer um, information, even prehistorically, right, from generation to generation. And the way it was able to be sustained so beautifully is because of these ancient texts that had rhythm, rhyme, rhyme and music. And so they just carried through from generation to generation because that was easy, not easy, but you would work on it, but because of melodic and beat rhythm and those types of aspects, they just carried through from generation to generation with very little alteration. And so um, even if you could not read or write, um, or if there was no script available, those oral traditions could adhere. And um, what I also understood um, recently, well, not recently, it's known in, in text and history that after India was invaded, because, um, you know, we had the Islamic invasions that had occurred in the 1500s and so on, many, what I understood, and there's a lot of heated controversy and uh, talk right now going on in India, especially, um, let's say, those Hindu texts that were very scientifically based because it's it's prehistoric, right, in terms of prehistoric meaning before the history that of man maybe writing down other parts of the world or what what maybe um, European culture considered to be um, history starting <laughs> man taking documentation. Um, a lot of the sciences that were maybe based out of uh, the peninsula of India, like Hindu-based or Vedic-based sciences and scriptures that were written were destroyed in those invasions. And so there is no evidence anymore of the depth of knowledge that people from that time were able to, had actually ascertained. And so there's a lot of um, kind of uh, animosity, I guess, feelings of that as as the, there's rise of this awareness more and polarizations like everywhere else that we're seeing. And so there's there's kind of this friction now that you're hearing more like we were here first, and, you know. But in terms of language, which is always fascinating to me, um, yeah, in terms of it, uh, I think most people around the world are encouraged to learn more than one language because the world was smaller, right? And especially in old places and especially uh, not that's even in the West, I mean, you had your local dialect and maybe you had a more of a regional dialect, right? And I don't know, this country, there was some mandate that you shouldn't become bilingual because it'll confuse you, I guess, in the education system. So they removed that um, sentiment and that need. It was some, I think it was based in California. Something had come up decades upon decades ago where bi bilingualism was discouraged in schools, which well, is a shame. Part of it is because the, most people can't figure out how to say insurance correctly. <laughs> insurance that's a dig at me guys <laughs> yes. yes well actually no, I, myself. yeah but I, I highly encourage you to actually um, you know go to bbc.com and uh, last week they had a documentary on uh, the oldest university um, and that university is called Nalanda University in India which uh, preceded Oxford and Cambridge and Bologna by 1800 years. Uh, and it had the richest manuscripts and the oral traditions captured. Uh, I sent that to Tom, uh, I, I, that link to Tom, by the way. And, uh, and actually, uh, you know, uh, it's amazing. And, and it was destroyed completely and burnt to ashes. Um, when one of the earliest uh, invaders uh, from the Middle East 
from Afghanistan. I think uh, a Muslim king came and completely it was burnt to ashes. And then it took 700 years later that university was reborn and, um, and some manuscripts were recovered and uh, they continued that. And it was, a, and that shows how spirituality and faith uh, in different parts of the world actually uh, continue to influence, mm -hmm. today, you know, uh, all of us. Um, Tracy's asking uh, if there's more than one Baptist seminary. No, there's only one, and it was it's called Southwestern Baptist Seminary. Has it been there a long time, Anita? Yes, yes. Because my grandmother was born in 1895, and I believe, well, I, I, I'll have to I, look, but I'm pretty sure that's where she went was, in the 1905. Yes, I think it was there, yes. How about that? I think there's a Dallas. Isn't there Dallas Baptist? No, uh, there's a Dallas Baptist seminary which Billy Graham went to, but that's not. No, that, this, this is the Fort Worth one, which is much yeah. older. Um, and um, and strangely enough, it's right in the shadow of TCU. Um, but not many people know about it. Um, uh, even, even TCU people never heard of it. You know, uh, there's a sign on the highways, Southwestern Baptist with an arrow uh, seminary, but that's about it. Even Tom knows that, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's amazing though, you know, I met some students from India who, who come to that seminary to study uh, and their own language is being taught at this seminary, but no other seminary in India is tackling that, that language. Mm. So it, it's, 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 talk about, uh, you know, creating problems for a post-colonial scholar like me, who, you know, has all this contradiction going on, and I'm going, how how is this possible? You know, uh, and what commitment and what drive uh, Christians possess uh, in terms of taking the word to the four corners of the world? You know, I mean, of course, they did that in Latin America. I mean, you know, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, you know, and they gave the language of the Incas to Incas. I mean, the, you know, the Inca Indians, native, got the written script from Rome, and then they converted to Christianity. I mean, this is like a, an amazing uh, ritual. I have a question for Sunil, going to go back to um, something I wrote when you were speaking. First of all, you are a pastor, even though you didn't go into that as a, a profession. Yes, exactly. Uh, you are certainly fulfilling the role of a pastor and um, pastoral care. So I think God finds a way, you know, to equip us and to use us as he needs us. I think you're also an apostle, though, too. I see that in you. Um, but uh, I was just curious, you talked about the narrow path. And as Christians, that doesn't seem too uh, unfamiliar, per se. But I, I would just love to hear your thoughts on what the narrow path means to you in light of your um, stranger in a homeland theme. <laughs> oh, so so when, when I was much younger, uh, I was very 
angry. I was like an angry young man type mm -hmm. of a thing. Mm -hmm. And very, you know, go get it. And if somebody stops you, just bulldoze your way through that kind of a thing. But after my faith experience, I started to learn to sort of let go. And it manifests itself in many, many challenges. For example, driving in America is also <laughs> a narrow path. I mean, particularly New Jersey is called the worst state to drivers, for drivers. And I mean, it's, I, I, be, I believe God brought me to New Jersey just to teach me patience, right? So, <laughs> so let's say after dinner, Prafula says, you know what, it's a very warm day. Let's go get ice cream. And we just step out. It's like 10.30 late in the night, right? There are some late night stores open because it's summer. We're going and we're going at a very sedate pace and you don't want to rush and you're not putting the pedal to the metal type of thing. And there are guys behind you who are just, you know, flashing lights. So you want us so that they could just get on with it. And you're thinking, come on, man, it's so late in the night. Where, where do you got to rush, right? So it's it's that kind of a thing. So what you do, you move to the right lane and say, please, get, go ahead, by all means. So long story short, even at, even at the workplace, like you're deprived. I, I work for a very strongly Indian rooted company. And so what it means is many of these top guns, they also bring that mindset into the workplace. So I, I'm for the last three years, I've been deprived of, of a promotion. Oh. And, I, and I know if I just put my resume out there on LinkedIn, I'd start getting offers because I, I bring in a very interesting mix of, uh, but again, uh, the way Profula and I look at it is the, the worldview that I embrace says that there is a perfect time for everything, that God in the fullness of time, in his own time, and he makes all things beautiful. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about it. And so we feel that our steps are ordered. And so you're not in a desperate bid to, to grow faster or as fast as the guy next to me. So, so you're running a race in a different, marching to the beats of a different drummer, so to speak. So that's how I see some of this manifest. The narrow path manifests in the choices you make. Yeah. Uh, you you also don't uh, you you show compassion uh, even 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 in the way you give your time. As you all know, in America, if there's anyone who can give time to others without constantly looking at your watch, which means then you are you are blessing them with the greatest gift that you can give. Um, between my four o'clock service, which was an Indian service, and our ecclesia, I had to swing quickly and take my older boy, Aman, go by and just uh, visit a family who was having a memorial service of somebody they had lost last year. In India, Indian culture, the first year memorial is a big one. Yeah. So I went there and there were like about 100 people there. And I sneaked in. I just wanted to register my presence let the family know I was here and, and then uh, come out. But it's if, if you're tall and you're six foot, you could never make a very unobtrusive entrance, right? You, you, people notice and you, you're like, you stick out and stuff, right? So people noticed and then they called me for closing prayer. So I had to stay, finish that and, and then quickly dash back. So there, 
you you want to give the very best that, that you could give because they're all reasonably wealthy people, affluent, well done, all of them tech jobs, many of them. It's not what you offer to them, but the best gift is that you, like you said, the, that pastoral heart is that you just want to be with the lady who lost her husband and just let them know that you care and you're praying for them. So that's how it manifests mission. Oh, thank you. That's beautiful. And Anthony, what about you? In, in terms of what? How would you answer that, answer that about the narrow path and what that means to you in light of your experience? Hold on, I, I can't, uh, I'm, I'm not hearing you. Uh-oh, can everyone else hear me? Okay, go ahead. Okay, um, how, how does the concept of the narrow path uh, what does that mean to you in light of your experience, your unique faith journey? The narrow path, can you, can you define that a bit? Uh, the narrow path meaning, um, maybe that's more of a Baptist thing, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I, 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 I didn't get it. No, so let me explain uh, what uh, I think I was referring to and what Michelle picked up was, when you choose to say, I am now a Christian, you're saying no to a whole lot of other things. And you can just like, for example, in the, back in my advertising days, advertising crowd was seen as the most liberal crowd. They would drink, they'd smoke, they'd, they'd possibly do drugs. They, they, they'd have sex outside of marriage and or that kind of stuff, right? But because I chose to be a young disciple at that age, I couldn't associate or do any of those things. Oh. So I, in that sense, I chose from the, the biblical, the wide is the gate and narrow is the path, that kind of a metaphor. I chose a narrow path and as a stranger in the homeland. So Michelle picked up that metaphor and she's asking you. Oh, okay. Man, you guys are too high for us <laughs> for me. I was just worried, <laughs> you know? So, uh, but I don't know whether I have a narrow path, though, you know, because I have uh, the capacity to have a latitude. I, I float between um, whatever the yardsticks are in front of me, uh, what's conventional, what's unconventional, um, and what uh, is proper, what's not. Uh, people wouldn't even notice that I'm the odd man out anywhere because I am with them. I, I am part of the crowd, although I'm not compromising certain things, I still have the ability to transcend those, those kind of differences and we still belong to, as a sense of belonging to them, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know whether that's uniquely. Well, I, and one thing that I picked up on something you said, Anantha, that I think fits and, and, and I think it's a beautiful way of looking at that particular concept of a narrow path. It's yeah. different for everyone. And, and, and Sunil has beautifully uh, represented how a lot of people interpret that scripture. But I think his answer, and I think what I've heard you say tonight and numerous times, is how inclusion is so important to you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is not inclusivity. That's not a word, people. <laughs> that drives me crazy when I hear that inclusion, not division, is uh, is is it may not 
feel like a narrow path, but it is. When you look at the challenge of truly loving all people and being inclusive is really hard for some people. So in that respect, it becomes a narrow path. It doesn't feel narrow to you. It feels narrow to the other, right? Um, and, and I just, I love what you were saying about uh, the, I, I, not loved, but it's sad that there are so many divisive issues yeah. that seem to tear groups of people apart, not just one religion from another or even American culture from other countries, but literally within our own faith communities, allowing issues to be divisive. Jesus never did that. He was inclusive at every turn and every example he gave us. And yet we have a lot of people currently that in this country that don't seem to recognize that and they let things get in the way the united methodist church just a year or two ago just went through it uh, that many of our church denominations have gone through on an issue that they let divide the body of christ in that group um, the lgbtq in the pulpit issue and so um, we're never going to agree on everything. We can't let issues get in the way of faith. And yet we think where our faith is driving our position on an issue. Um, so anyway, I, I, I recognize what you were saying there and, and I really uh, respect how, just how much, how far you go to be inclusive and to make everyone feel welcome. Just as a, as a footnote, uh, yeah, Tracy, go ahead. Oh, give me your sound. Yeah, I just want to say to, to both of you, I know Ronu was off the call. Um, I hope that you don't feel like you're strangers when you come to Ecclesia, because we very much feel like you're a part of our group, our faith community. And... Um, just wouldn't be the same without you. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're sort of like a mole. No, you're not like that. <laughs> um, so we don't call yeah. you strangers. We love you. Thank you. Thank you, I Thank you for saying that, Tracy. Can I say something? <clears throat> Being accepted by Anantha's family, they are so inclusive of me, you know, a white guy. And, uh, the, I mean, they're like my real family. They are so inclusive. And Anantha calls me the token white guy. <laughs> <laughs> a brother from another mother, right? That's it. <laughs> but they are so inclusive. They show their love to me, and I feel their love. And So you see, uh, yeah, thanks, Tom. I appreciate that. You see on the screen uh, a name called Mohan. Uh, I hope it doesn't disappear. Uh, I'm talking about you, Mohan. Uh, and his last name is Matthew, okay? Mohan Matthew. And he is from the state of Kerala in India, which has the largest population uh, percentage of 
uh, Christians uh, in all states of India. Kerala has the most. And he belongs to a denomination, by the way. Uh, it's called Martoma, which is St. Thomas. Translation in, in Malayalam, his language is Martoma. Toma is Thomas. Uh, Mar is St. Thomas. And that denomination of Christianity is the oldest in India, started in 60 AD. So he can proudly claim that Christianity arrived in India long before it went to Europe. And, um, and, and uh, uh, despite the Hindu fundamentalists at that time who later on crucified Thomas um, in India for preaching the gospel, um, uh, it, 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 it imbibed and it embraced Christianity as a fellow religion uh, to exist alongside uh, Judaism too. Judaism had a presence in India uh, long uh, when they were fleeing Europe, they came to India and settled down. So the generations of, of Jew, Jews um, and, and of course the oldest is the Mohan's uh, denomination. Um, and and that, that means you can tell the Christian imprint in India go centuries and centuries uh, old, that's it. You know? Well, when we come over there, can we go visit Mohan and his, where he's from? Oh, and they have some of, they have some of the most beautiful churches too. I mean, the architecture and things like that is just amazing. And Mohan's it's lush... in Dallas, isn't he? Huh? Isn't Mohan in Dallas? No, he's in Corpus Christi. Oh, Corpus Christi. Yeah, he lives a stone's throw from me, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> we actually both went to the same Episcopal church this morning. Okay. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, hey, Mohan, you want to show off your face just like that? You don't need to speak. He's very shy, by the way. That's why he doesn't want to show up on on, uh, <laughs> on visual screen. But, uh, oh, you can say hi, Mohan. Hello. We're, we're glad yeah. you're here, even yeah. even uh, off camera. Yeah, you can be shy here anytime you want, Mohan. Right. <laughs> we're glad that you're here. Um, well, I have one last thing. I, maybe others have others, but I, I want to go back to um, Sunil's question of will we ever be at home? And I hope that Teresi hit the nail on the head. I hope you're at home here. <laughs> I think you certainly have the opportunity to feel at home here. If we walk into somebody's kitchen and we cook tamarind <laughs> rice, yellow right. rice, right. we know we, we're home. <laughs> yeah, and if you That's ever start right. to have any doubts, come back. <laughs> Renew that one-year license. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to wait that long, though. <laughs> Anybody have any other questions or comments? Jim, you're muted. Rather than strangers in the homeland, it's more like friends in a strange land. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's so much like an ecclesia. Yeah. <laughs> the called out ones. You've been listening to a sample Ecclesia Circle conversation. 
by the inclusive and loving faith community of Ecclesia Global, a nonprofit supporting the journey of spiritual transformation for all people. Be inspired to greater curiosity and faith by visiting our YouTube channel, Ecclesia Love for All, and that's Ecclesia Love, the number four, all, or at our website, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A-L-O-V-E.com, ecclesialove.com.